In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. This is the fourth Sunday of Lent as we continue in this call for self-examination. This is the call that we received in Ash Wednesday that the Lenten season is about examining ourselves. It's about having clear sight, being able to see who we really are so that we may repent and so that we may receive healing. The only way that we seek healing is if we recognize that we're sick, that we're in need of a physician. And so we have to have real sight, we have to have clarity to be able to see our own sickness so that we can receive healing from the physician. If we're going to participate in that healing, we have to have clear seeing, we have to have clear understanding of the medicine that the physician is applying to us. And so we must see what that help looks like. So we must have clear sight in order to perceive that healing that the physician is applying to us. That is the sight that we are seeking this morning in self-discernment in this Lenten season. As we think about sight, as we think about seeing as the Lord sees, no better place for us to start than in 1 Samuel here in chapter 16 where the Lord tells Samuel that he's not seeing as the Lord sees. What is it that Samuel's been called to do? Samuel's been called to find a replacement for Saul. Let's take a brief moment as we go back and look at salvation history and how we got here. You remember that Adam and Eve are born in the garden and that they produce many children. And these children go on in generation until uh, the earth is uh, filled with people who are fallen into sin. There is uh, sin everywhere. There's only one righteous man, Noah. The Lord washes the earth uh, in the flood and Noah comes out of the ark after the flood with his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. From the line of Shem comes Abraham. He is this lone man of faith who perceives the will of God and follows it. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel and has 12 sons. The 12 sons of Israel, you remember, go down into Egypt. And there, over several hundreds of years, these 12 sons become 12 tribes. They become a great nation. And Moses, the prophet, leads them out of sin and darkness in Egypt to the edge of the promised land. Joshua, the Savior, leads them into the promised land. And once there, they are ruled by this group of people called the Judges. During this period of history of the Judges, these are kind of prophets, kind of warlords that fight off the Philistines and the other surrounding people groups that were trying to press in on the promised land and defeat the Israelites. Uh, they have uh, moderate success in this, and so that the people... Um, and their feeling of failure and distress call out uh, that they need a king the way that the surrounding countries have a king. And so the Lord grants them a king even though the prophet at this time, Samuel, says, the Lord is your king, you should be following him. The Lord instructs Samuel, do you have hurt feelings on my behalf? And so Samuel is obedient and he anoints Saul as king. Saul, you remember, is a great man. He's a tall man. He stands, Scripture says, head and shoulders above his neighbors. He looks the part of a great king and warlord. And while he's successful in battle, Saul fears the people. He fears the people, and so he follows the people rather than God. And so the Lord rejects Saul because he fails to fear the Lord and instead fears and follows the people. It's at this point that Samuel is distraught. Samuel's in grief. Samuel is 
thinking about the way things were and should have been. And Samuel's grief and thinking about the way things were and should have been keep him from being in the present moment and following the direction of God. Anybody else have any experience with this? Thinking about I woulda, I coulda, I shoulda, the way things were, things used to be great, things used to go well, our country used to be this, our church used to be that. And in that focus and that long bygone could have been, would have been, should have been, we're not listening to where we're at and seeing clearly what the Lord is calling us to do. And the Lord says, move past that and do what I'm telling you to do now. Go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And the Lord leaves it there. He doesn't tell him which son. So Samuel has to go and he has to anoint Jesse and all of his sons and call down the Holy Spirit upon them. And he looks at, at Jesse's sons and he sees some who are much like Saul, these tall, great, rugged warlords. And he says, it must be one of these. And the Lord says, you don't see the way I see. I see into the heart. I'm looking for the man who will fear me and not fear the people. And this is a hallmark of David's kingship. That he does not fear Goliath, he doesn't fear the surrounding armies, and he doesn't fear his own people. He fears the Lord. Samuel needs to learn how to see the way God sees. And we like to fool ourselves to think that we can see into people's hearts the way that God does, right? We think, oh, because of the way that he looked and the way that his eyes moved and the way that he spoke and the way that he dressed, I know his intents. I know his heart. And this is foolishness, the height of foolishness. In fact, we know that the more people think they can discern the heart and mind of another person, the worse at it they tend to be, right? If we're honest, we know we don't even know our own hearts. We don't even know our own intentions. We have trouble telling what our own thoughts are what our own desires are. Faced with a problem, we can't even make up our own minds. People that can't even make up their own minds and know their own hearts are so deeply confused as to think they know the hearts and minds of others. So Samuel says, you have to wait upon me. I'm going to show you the heart of this man. And so Samuel finally follows the will of God and the great, 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 great grandson of Christ is anointed as king as a type for Christ. And that king, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, comes and he too sees the heart of men and would clarify and refine their hearts into a true vision. We think about vision, we, we think about sight, and that's how this, uh, this miracle begins for us with Seeing in the eyes, a physical scene. And we move into a spiritual scene. In John chapter 9, we start this healing miracle that is the sixth miracle of John's gospel. John's gospel has seven miracle stories in it. Maybe you've heard that number used before, the number seven. It appears a couple of times through scripture. Whenever we see the number seven, we ought to stop and say, hey, maybe this is important. The miracles of John start with the wedding at Cana and end with the resurrection of Lazarus. Begin with the wedding and end with the resurrection. Do you think that's important? Maybe so. 
We begin with the marriage, we end with the resurrection, and at the penultimate, the next to the last miracle, we have this vision of sight, this miracle of, of seeing. And it's a miracle of seeing with a man who is born blind. Now, somebody who had seen, who has some problem with the eye, and the eye is healed, is, is a lesser miracle, is it not? Because of this person had sight that's restored. And what we know is that somebody who has never seen doesn't possess the architecture in their brains to perceive sight. Even if an optic nerve is restored at some later date, if in early life that ability to see is not built into the architecture of the brain during that early period of development, they're not going to be able to see. So somebody who is born blind does not have the, the neurological pathways to be able to participate in sight. That means this miracle is more than the eye, it's more than the optic nerve, it's the entire neurological structure of this man's brain and body. He has been remade. He has been remade anew. And those that see it don't really see it. They want to talk about who sinned. And the Lord says, that's none of your business, right? He says, this is so that God's miracle can be performed. Right? This is Jesus' way of saying, it's none of your business. He says, but that the works of God might be displayed. And then he summarizes that and he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. In other words, be concerned about what God has told you to do. Don't take on things that are none of your business. Who sinned? Be about the work of God. Be about the work of him who sent me while it is day. So he calls the people of God to perceive what they're being called to do. The Pharisees get off into this rabbit trail and this tangent and they reject the man. And we don't read all of the back and forth. The lectionary doesn't include for us where the Pharisees go to his parents and they interview his parents and they interrogate him some more. And this whole time they're trying to uh, find some other explanation. The man who is healed starts out with basically zero faith. What does he say when asked? He says, the man, Jesus. Right? Chapter 9, verse 11. St. John's Gospel. He answered, the man, Jesus, made mud. So he starts out not with low Christology. He starts out with no Christology. This is just the man Jesus. That's how he begins. And then after they continue to press him about what's happened, the religious leaders and authorities and their failure to see leave this man with no other opportunity, with no other option, but to begin to use his own reflection, his own thought process, his own rationality, to try to come to a deeper understanding. And so he enters into a kind of a logical proof. He starts out by saying, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he came from, and yet he healed me. So he starts off with amazement, right? This is incredible. How can you not know he healed me? In verse 31, he asserts, we know that God does not listen to sinners. Let's start there. God doesn't listen to sinners. 
First assertion. Second one, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, so now we've got this two things that we're going to need to find somebody who's going to be able to do the will of God. They've got to worship him and they've got to do his will. So he says, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if he's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So he says, number one, you're rejecting him as a sinner, but we know that can't be. We know that somebody to do the will of God has to be a worshiper of God. And they have to do his will. That's clear. Then he asserts another statement. He says, never since the world began has anyone heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This has never happened before. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So he says, this is a God-sized miracle. If the person is not from God, they could not do it. So he says, we know now that he's a righteous man. We know that he's a worshiper of God. We know that he is a, one who follows God's will. We know that this is somebody sent from God because this is a God-sized miracle. And so now he's at the place of realizing that Jesus is sent from God. At that point, Jesus comes back and is ready to have dialogue with him again. And so now Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now this title, the Son of Man, is from the prophet Daniel. You remember that when he's in Babylon, he sees this great vision of Christ descending from heaven. And he says, I saw one like the Son of Man, ascending and descending. Right? He sees Jesus. So this title of the Son of Man is this, this God-man that he sees descending from heaven. And so this God-man is who Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man born blind says, show him to me. Show him to me so that I may believe. Now he desires belief. He knows who it is that must heal him, and he desires belief. And Jesus says, it's me. You've seen me. And the man says, Lord, I believe. He says who Jesus is, and then he says that he believes, and he worships him. He worships him. Now, he sees. Not just physically. But he sees spiritually who Jesus is. And Jesus says, if you don't see your own sin, you can't be forgiven. Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. If you reject that understanding that you have sin, you have no way to repent. This is the sin against the Holy Spirit. But now the man born blind has true sight and he's able to worship God. And this is what's required for us to enter into that life of sight that St. Paul describes in this beautiful letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5. St. Paul is telling us this is how we need to live. We need to live as people who see. But we're not seeing to be voyeurs. We're not seeing just to watch God do his thing. Right? We're not a YouTube church. We're not just watching other people worship. 
We're not watching other people do things, right? You can watch somebody build a house all day long. That does not mean you can build a house, right? If you want to be able to build a house, you have to actually start what? Doing it. You have to pick up a hammer. You have to pick up nails. You have to do it. You have to be an imitator. You have to go out and do the thing. You have to say, oh, I'm going to imitate this person. I'm going to do it the way that they do it. Watching is not enough. Imitating is what we are called to do. And what is it we're imitating? St. Paul in chapter 5 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself as an offering and sacrifice. In other words, we have to offer ourselves, sacrifice our lives for others in imitation of God. What prevents us from doing that? What prevents us from sacrificing for others? Because we talk with foul language and we say bad things about other people. Right? We start doing things and saying things about people that keep us from being able to sacrifice. Because if we don't love people, we're not going to lay down our lives for them. And what keeps us from love? Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, right? Idolatry. He says, let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. Crude jokes are what lead us to a life of sin. People think, oh, I can talk in a filthy way, all I want, that doesn't mean I'll act that way. That's the height of foolishness. That's exactly what leads us into that kind of talk and life. And to talk about foolish things, things that mean nothing, things that have no meaning, no usefulness, no purpose, lead us into that kind of a life. A useless life with no meaning, no purpose, no benefit to others. But he says we need to be imitators and partners with the Lord in light. He says, walk as children of light and try, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So we're supposed to be trying, we're supposed to be looking to see what does the Lord love? He loves his people. What does he love me to do for his people? To sacrifice for them, to lay down my life for them, to love them, to serve them. So we're supposed to be trying to discern this life of sacrifice and love, which takes effort, which takes focus. And it takes us being awake and seeing. St. Paul ends this beautiful passage with a quote that the fathers of the church spend a long time trying to discover. It looks like it's a quote from Scripture at first, but when you read it, you find it's not from Scripture at all, and it's not from any other known ancient source. We think that it's a line from an ancient baptismal hymn that the early church sang. And so St. Paul is using the hymns of the church to remind us about this life of love and sacrifice that we're being called to. He says, Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up. See what God is doing. See what he's calling us to do. <laughs> See the life of love and of righteousness. See his love for his people. And be imitators. We must see with more than our eyes. We must see with our hearts and with our minds the call of God to love. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. <laughs>